Welcome to our study on the boys of summer. We're almost through the minor prophets. Today we're going to look at the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has been called the revelation of the Old Testament. That is, it is a book along with Daniel and Ezekiel that speaks most, uh, more than other books in the Old Testament about the last days. Um, it's a book that is, it's the longest of the 12 minor prophets, but it's also a, a, a tough book sometimes to understand because like the prophets, he's speaking about the Messiah. He's giving us information about the one who is coming. Uh, he talks about God marshalling mysterious forces to bring human uh, history to a conclusion. But like like the other prophets that we see, particularly Ezekiel, uh, he he can't always distinguish between a first coming of the Messiah, what we have in the New Testament, what we have in the Gospels of of Jesus coming to the earth in in human flesh. Uh, he has trouble separating those events from the events of the second coming. Uh, I've often described Old Testament prophecy as um, as looking at, at mountain peaks from a distance. And from a distance, they line up like they're just one mountain, but it's only as you get closer that you see that there's a valley in between those mountain peaks. And so Zechariah can be called the revelation of the Old Testament, but, but consider this. Take the book of Revelation and, and the difficulties that we have translating and, and interpreting some of those verses. Take Revelation... Move it even further back, about 600 more years away from the last days, and then put it in Hebrew. And that combination of factors makes Zechariah uh, an interesting book. Zechariah was from a priestly family. The background for this book is recorded really in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. He ministered uh, pretty much alongside the prophet that we looked at last week, Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah are what we call post-exilic prophets. They're prophets who show up after the 70 years of exile in Babylon as as the the nation of Judah is coming back as refugees uh, to rebuild the promised land, to resettle Jerusalem. They followed uh, a leader by the name of Zerubbabel. He was the political leader. He had a right-hand man named Joshua who was the high priest, and they were the ones in charge of rebuilding the temple. Now, much later, we'll see Ezra come and then Nehemiah come. Nehemiah is really the very end of the Old Testament, and, and his responsibility is to rebuild the walls around the city. But right now, the people are focused on the temple. And we saw with Haggai last week that they were discouraged by the opposition of the people who lived in the land. They were discouraged by the lack of progress that they made. And, and so they had really turned inward and begun to, uh, to build their own houses and to, to just do their own lives. And the house of the Lord, the temple, had been unattended, un, unfinished. Haggai came along and then Zechariah pretty quickly uh, alongside Haggai. And they proved to be, uh, from at least from a human standpoint, they proved to be the most successful pair of all the minor prophets because the people actually responded to the leadership of Haggai and Zechariah uh, 
as well as to the political leadership of, um, of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and then also Ezra as he came along. The people responded. They were anxious to, to get back to the place where they needed to be and, and, and to follow God. The, the exile had accomplished its purposes and turned the people of God back to a determination to not allow the sins of their forefathers to be characteristic of themselves. So when challenged about their priorities, about making God first, about pursuing Him, uh, wholeheartedly, uh, they responded and, and, uh, and did those things. Uh, they were teachable. And so Zechariah has a, a, a very effective and productive ministry. Now, Haggai's emphasis was really about physical walls, about the, the rebuilding of the temple. He wanted the people to realign their priorities so that they could accomplish the physical work that was in front of them. Zechariah came along, and while he does have a similar focus, he is about encouraging the people to the work that's in front of them. Uh, he looks much further down the road than the construction of the temple. And that's why we call this the revelation of the Old Testament, because he's going to talk to us about the Messiah. He's going to talk about uh, that mysterious one who will come one day as the anointed one of God to bring about the salvation that the history of Israel and Judah has been leading to. He's going to talk about the the final unfolding what what the apostle paul called the fullness of time when god would would uh would make himself known and uh and both bring salvation in the in the person of the messiah and as the lord of armies bring forces that would one day uh, deal decisively with the problem of evil the prophet here zechariah speaks about both the first and the final coming of Jesus. And the point that he's going to make that we need to hold on to in 2020 is this. Your king is coming. And when he comes, he's going to reign forever. I've said Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets, so we're not going to be able to read every verse of 14 chapters, but... Uh, if you want to follow along with me, uh, open your Bibles to Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament. In the first six verses, we're going to have a brief history lesson as he, um, as he parallels Haggai. In fact, the first six verses of the book of Zechariah take place between Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 and Haggai 2 verse 10. We insert these six verses, and we know this because Haggai and Zechariah both give us historical markers, dates that we can actually measure. So he's going to give us, he's going to insert this to show that he's pretty much parallel with that, uh, that three month period that Haggai, uh, spoke. Uh, and then after those, after these first six verses, uh, the rest of his ministry will be in about the next three years or so after Haggai has completed his work. So so there's your timetable. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors, so tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me, 
This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? Do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? In other words, he's saying, let's do a quick history lesson. Do you want to repeat the history of your forefathers? They had prophets. Those prophets spoke the word of God, but they refused to listen. And so I love the way he puts it. The words of the prophets overtook your forefathers, your ancestors. They, and then he asked this question. So where are your ancestors now? Well, they died in Babylon. They were carried off into exile. They were set aside because they weren't useful in the progress of redemption that was unfolding by the God of Israel and Judah. Do you want to be like your ancestors? That's the question. And they answer this. So the people repented and said, as the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. In other words, we're not going to respond the way our ancestors did. We want to be faithful. And we know that when we're faithful, God will deal with us differently than he dealt with our unfaithful forefathers. Well, that sets the stage. And with the rest of the book of Zechariah, is a collection of writings. Now, let me let me give you this uh, breakdown of the entire book. From this verse that we've just finished, uh, the rest of, the, of, of Zechariah through chapter 6 is what I've called a litany of visions. The prophet has eight visions just back to back to back. In fact, the the, the flow of the text seems to indicate that an angelic messenger came... Uh, came to, Ze- to Zephaniah, uh, to Zechariah, I'm sorry, came to Zechariah and apparently in a single evening, uh, uh, a single night, maybe just an afternoon, he had this series of eight visions, one right after another. Those eight visions apparently came in a single session, but then the rest of his book will be the sermons that he spent the next years uh, of his life proclaiming that flow out of what was revealed to him in those visions. So it's fascinating because the first six chapters of Zechariah, eight visions, we're going we're gonna to look at those visions and, and see what the message is that was being handed visually and, and, and not just visually but, but memorably what was being handed to the prophet. In chapter 7 and 8, we're going to have a little uh, parenthesis as he answers a question about fasting. We'll, we'll look at that in just a minute. And then in verses nine, th- in chapters 9 through 14, we have uh, what I've called a lifetime of sermons. The afternoon or, or, or the night of visions plays out into years of messages that the prophet delivers. And, uh, and it, it's, it's fascinating. So let, let's quickly see if we can can work through this. Um, These visions are just like other visions in Scripture. They're memorable. They're colorful. Um, 
And the prophet is, as, as always, the prophet is a bit overwhelmed with trying to actually understand what he's seeing. And so the, the angelic messenger is there to sort of give commentary and to narrate uh, the unfolding uh, vision. And so what we find is in these first six chapters, Zechariah is regularly asking the, the, the angel for information. And the angel will explain the visions as we go along. In fact, in a couple of places, uh, it's as if the angel himself turns to the Lord in heaven and gets explanation from God, which he then turns around and delivers to Zechariah. It's a fascinating uh, story, these, these first eight visions. So let's look at them. The first vision is the vision of four horsemen. Um, start with verse 7 of chapter 1. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. First vision. I looked out in the night and saw a man riding on a chestnut horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley. Behind him were chestnut, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? He asked the, the angelic messenger. The angel who was talking to me replied, I'll show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They reported to the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees, We have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord responded, How long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these seventy years? The Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who was speaking with me. So the angel who was speaking with with me said, Proclaim, the Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease. For I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord of armies says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. He sees a picture of a mounted patrol. Now, the imagery... um, Zechariah is probably, because he gives his family heritage, uh, he comes from a priestly family, but he's probably a pretty young man. He apparently returned from exile with his grandfather, uh, as we see in the, in the, the genealogy that's mentioned. And, and at this point, he's, he's a young adult man. But even with his limited memory, of growing up in Babylon, uh, as the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, it was Darius, the second king over Judah uh, as a part of the, the Persian Empire. Darius is the one that actually uh, promoted the release of Judah to return to their homeland. It was in the second year that he mentions here. Uh, so he has memory not only of the Babylonians, but he has memory of the Persian Empire that replaced the Babylonian Empire. One of the characteristics of the ancient Persian Empire was they were, they, they had what today we would call a mounted police force. And so the Persian Empire would have been, for law and order purposes, they would have had patrols of mounted, uh, police, um, moving through the empire in in various cities 
always on the lookout for disturbances or trouble. Using that kind of imagery, what he sees here are angelic, uh, an angelic patrol force, mounted uh, patrol, and they're surveying the whole earth. And they come back and they say, everything is quiet. There, there's nothing happening, which seems to bother them. Because as the angel turns to the Lord and says, how long, O Lord, until, until you restore Jerusalem? What's happened is the nations, uh, there's one particularly interesting verse here. Uh, it, the verse, let's see which one it is. Um, oh, verse 15. I am fiercely, this is God speaking. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. You remember Habakkuk's problem a few weeks ago. Habakkuk said, God, how can you judge Judah by sending the Babylonians? The Babylonians are way worse. They're morally defiled. They're, how can you use them as instruments? I mean, that was Habakkuk's problem. What God says here is, I was angry and I used these instruments, but they actually brought judgment on themselves by exerting a cruelty beyond uh, what I wanted. And so he looks and the world seems to be sort of... Uh, uh, content right now and god says i'm going to shake things up because i'm going to restore my people i'm going to make jerusalem once again the center of the worship of the one true god i'm going to make myself known in a temple among my people and the nations will uh will receive what they have coming to them the message of the four horsemen is that God is not unaware of the problems that Judah faces and that as he is surveying the entire earth, he knows exactly what needs to happen and he is on the side of his people. Well, that's a message we're going to see again, but that's a message that we need to hear in 2020. Vision number two, the four horns. Then I looked up and saw four horns. So I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are they coming to do? He replied, these are the horns that scattered Judah so no one could raise his head. These craftsmen have come to terrify them to cut off the horns of the nations that raised a horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. In other words, four is a complete number in, in, in the biblical text. And four horns, he says, these are the, these, these, this is the combination of nations that have terrorized the people of God. But I have sent four craftsmen, or, or some translations say four blacksmiths, and they are going to judge those nations. They're going to cut them off. And, and, and the message here is God is, is bringing revenge on behalf of his people for those who are their enemies. Again, a message pretty relevant for God's people in 2020. The third vision, chapter 2. I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand, and I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to determine its width and length. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, run and tell this young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and livestock in it. The declaration of the Lord, I myself will be a wall of fire around it and I will be the glory within it. What a great picture here. He says, I saw a surveyor and he was measuring the size of the city. Why? Because God is making a pledge that he himself will be the wall of protection around Jerusalem. And in the center of the city where the temple is built, he will be the glory that comes from his presence in the midst of his people. Again, 
These are symbolic visions, but but it's one vision on top of another. He's just in a, it's a single night and he's just getting these visual images that are coming at him. The, the four horsemen tells him that God has an army. He's surveying. He knows what's happening in the world and he's on the side of his people. We, we saw the four horns. The nations that are against God's people will be judged. God has the manpower uh, to do just that. Now a surveyor has come to measure the space needed for his people. And he says, just like the old days where I was a pillar of fire that stood between you and the Egyptians, I will be a wall of fire that protects you from all of your enemies. Well, the fourth vision starts in chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me the high priest, Joshua. Now, remember, Zerubbabel is the political leader. Joshua is the high priest. He showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. Now, at least to this point, what he's saying is, here's an image of the high priest. The high priest represents the spiritual mediator between God and man. He was the one that was the, that was meant to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and to offer a sacrifice that would bring uh, forgiveness and mercy to a nation that was standing in repentance for their sins. This was a critical role. But he says the vision, in the vision, the high priest was was covered in filthy clothes. But God said, I'm going to, I'm going to reclothe him myself in festive robes that are clean. I'm going to dress him in a clean turban. It's symbolic of saying, I'm going to make the mediator between God and man. I'm going to make him clean and pure and sufficient enough that he can do the work required for me to forgive my people. See, what's powerful here is he's not saying, go get cleaned up before you come into my presence. It's God saying, I'm going to take the initiative to make sure that you're clean enough that we can be in relationship. This is the story all the way through the Bible. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. It's God that took the initiative to then clothe them and to promise that there would be a solution to this new problem in the human condition called sin. We look at the, uh, the, the vision that, that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees a vision of God seated on his throne high and lifted up. And he immediately falls on his face and he says, Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And God takes a coal and sets it on his tongue as a picture that God is taking the initiative to purify the lips of Isaiah so that he's adequate and useful to God. 
This is the great news of the gospel played out in Old Testament imagery. And that is that you and I can never get to God. We can never be good enough. We can never be what we need to be. And yet God always takes the initiative and puts it on himself to give us what we need in order for us to be in relationship with him, in order for us to be useful to him, in order for us to have all that he wants to give us. It's a great story. But this particular vision doesn't end there. Look at verse 8, chapter 3. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Well, now he's added something. He said, I'm going to give clean clothes to the high priest. I'm going to make him adequate to serve as a mediator. But eventually, I'm going to bring what is called the branch. My servant, the branch. This is an Old Testament reference to the Messiah. And he says something incredible. What was the role of the high priest? Why did the high priest need to be clean? Why did he need to be consecrated? Because on a regular basis, certainly on an annual basis, on the great high day of atonement, Yom Kippur, he would have to present sacrifices so that the people in their repentance could be made clean and acceptable and God would extend mercy to them. But he says, I'm going to bring my servant the branch and he is going to solve your sin problem in one day. What a revelation for Zechariah to receive. The Messiah is coming not to perpetuate the annual cycle of necessary sacrifices of animals so that we can keep holding on to, to this to this uh, picture uh, of what's eventually coming. The Messiah will be the actual sacrifice and it will be acceptable and it will deal with the sin problem in the human condition and it'll happen all in one day. Wow. Well, if we go jump ahead to the sixth chapter real quickly. In the sixth chapter, beginning in verse nine, we'll go back to the rest of the visions, but but there's a section at the end of chapter six called the crowning of the branch. Verse nine says, The word of the Lord came to me, take an offering from the exiles from Heldai to Bijah and Jedah and Jedidiah. Who have arrived from Babylon and go that same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take silver and gold, make a crown, and place it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You are to tell him, this is what the Lord of armies says. Here is a man whose name is Branch. He will branch out from his place and build the Lord's temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple. He will be clothed in splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. There will also be a priest on his throne and there will be a peaceful council between the two of them. What's fascinating there is that by God's restrictions in the Old Testament, um, he never allowed the king to serve as priest and he never allowed a priest to rule as king. 
It was always a separation of powers all the way through the history of Israel. In fact, the only example we have of a priest who served as a king goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when we find that mysterious character whose name was Melchizedek. The reason was the role of king and the role of priest were were kept separate. I think that is an Old Testament hint that God had built into the system of revelation that there would be a Messiah who one day would breach the gap between those two roles and he would fulfill both roles, but 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 they didn't realize, because they couldn't see that far into the future, they didn't realize that these two roles would be played out in two separate comings. Okay? We'll talk about that in just a second. Here in this vision, he says... He says, Joshua, who is the high priest, I want you to fashion a crown out of silver and gold, and I want you to put the crown on his head, and I want, to, I want him to sit on the throne, and his name will be Branch. He's using Joshua as a representative of the one who's coming, the Messiah, who he says will be, for the first time in Israel's history, he will be a priest and a king all wrapped up in a single package. Now, what they didn't understand that we're able to look at now is that is that Jesus came the first time and fulfilled the role of priest. He offered himself as mediator. He was both the priest and the sacrifice. He offers himself as mediator and and fulfilling the promise here, he would settle the problem of sin in a single day. But when he comes back a second time, he comes back bearing the crown of a king and he rules on the earth. This is an Old Testament vision prophesying that strange idea. The, the, the hearers who, who heard this described the very first time, their thought would have been, wait, you can't have a priest who serves as a king and you can't have a king that serves as a priest. In fact, if we go all the way back to the historical books, part of what got Saul, King Saul, in trouble with the prophet Samuel is that Saul tried to put himself off as a priest and conduct priestly duties. And when Samuel got there, he said, what, what have you done? The king can't do this. There was a strict separation until the branch. And the branch would be a priest bringing the presence of God into the lives of his people, bringing the lives of his people into the presence of God. But he would also be a king who ruled in justice, who defended, who, who served as the one who made things right on the earth. Joshua was not the branch, but he was seated on a throne with a crown in a vision communicating to Zechariah that something different than they've ever known before is going to play out and this king priest he would deal with sin and he would bring about justice in a world of brokenness and evil well number five chapter four is the fifth vision it's the vision of a, a gold lampstand and and two olive trees uh, we're not going to we're not going to read this one but uh, suffice it to say you may want these references uh, the, the imagery of lampstands and olive trees uh, show up in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, and the entire uh, 11th chapter of Revelation. And so these messianic end-time 
images that Zechariah is, is seeing and recording in, in the, the fourth chapter of Zechariah, uh, they play out, the imagery plays out further in chapter 1 and chapter 11 uh, of, of the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Uh, the two characters that are mentioned here, the two lampstands, uh, are seen in Zechariah's day as Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, you can go to the book of Revelation and see uh, how the king priest plays out along the lines of what, what I've already said. The sixth vision is in chapter 5. It's the vision of a flying scroll. He said, I looked up again and saw a flying scroll. What did you see? He asked me. I see a flying scroll, I replied, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Then he said, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land for everyone who is a thief, contrary to what is written on one side, has gone unpunished. And everyone who swears falsely, contrary to what is written on the other side, has gone unpunished. I will send it out. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will stay inside his house and destroy it along with its timbers and stones. He says, there's the scroll with the names now think about this. This is a, this is a great message for us in 2020. There's a scroll that sets out flying over the land and on one side, or actually on both sides, are recorded the names of people that have committed evil and who have yet to be punished. In other words, one of the great frustrations of, for people of faith in our generation is why does it seem that people who do wrong always get away with it? I mean, uh, why does there always seem to be a loophole? Why, why do politicians who are so clearly and obviously corrupt seem to never have to answer for their crimes? Well, this vision is a reminder that nobody ultimately gets away with evil because God has a record of everyone who has committed sin, who has gone unpunished, and in the right time, that, uh, that curse the curse of their sin, represented by this flying scroll, will come home to roost. The seventh vision, verse 5. Then the angel who was speaking with me came forward and told me, Look up and see, what is that that is approaching? So I asked, What is it? <laughs> he responded, It's a measuring basket that is approaching. And he continued, This is their iniquity. Iniquity in all the land. Then a lead cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting inside the basket. This is wickedness, he said. Notice that that word is capitalized in our English translations. What he's doing, in the same way that the book of Proverbs speaks about wisdom in terms of being a woman, uh, wisdom in the book of Proverbs is personified. It's given uh, a, a personality. It's given a, a, a personal presentation. Well, that's what Zechariah is, is seeing here. Wickedness is also given a personification. He sees a basket and they take the, the lid off the basket and in the basket is a woman. And he said, this is wickedness. This is all the wickedness in the land. He shoved her down into the basket and pushed the lead weight over its opening, pushed her back in the basket, covered it up again after the prophet had seen her. Then I looked up and saw two women approaching with the wind in their wings their wings were like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and sky. So I asked the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the basket? To build a shrine for it in the land of Shinar, he told me. When that is ready, the basket will be placed there on its pedestal. Shinar is a colloquial way of referring to Babylon 
or the nations of of that far eastern territory um they were known for their wickedness god had already said he's going to judge those nations so he's saying i'm taking all the wickedness out of this land and i'm carrying it there where i'm going to put it on a pedestal because they're going to worship wickedness and at the right time they'll be judged But the key to this story is, while God's going to judge those who worship wickedness like a a statue on a pedestal, the important part of this story is, I'm going to take wickedness out of the lives of my people, and I'm going to remove it from them. What a a great promise. Um, The last of the, of the visions is the first part of chapter 6. Then I looked up again and saw four chariots coming from between two mountains. The mountains were made of bronze. The first chariot had chestnut horses. The second chariot, black horses. The third chariot, white horses. And the fourth chariot, dappled horses. All strong horses. So I inquired of the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? The angel told me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out after presenting themselves to the Lord of the whole earth. The one with the black horse is going to the land of the north. The white horses are going after them. But the dappled horses are going to the land of the south. As the strong horses went out, they wanted to go patrol the earth. And the Lord said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he summoned me, saying, See, those going to the land of the north have pacified my spirit in the northern land. Uh, it's interesting. Remember, the first vision was of a mounted patrol of angels on horses. Now we've moved from a kind of police patrol. It's ratcheted up. There are chariots included. So now we're talking about military might in the same way that that, that there is a power uh, at the level of, of law enforcement officers. There's a whole different level of power when it when it transforms into military might. The first vision was a vision of God surveying by his eyes, by by his patrols, uh, the conditions of the earth so that he could act appropriately on behalf of his people. It finishes with the last um, the last vision almost as a, a, a bookend that closes in all these visions. Now God sends out um, the military might of his armies to bring judgment on the nations, to the north, to the south, all so that His people can be protected. These are awesome pictures, each one of a God who is in the business of protecting and providing for His people and making them right with Him, all the while judging evil and wickedness across the face of the earth. Um, now here's the one catch in all of that we didn't read the vision of the lampstands and the and the olive tree in in chapter four but i want you to go back to chapter four and and just look at one verse that may be uh one of the great verses to come out of the book of zechariah it's chapter four verse six god is going to bring justice on evil he is going to judge wickedness. He's going to protect his people. He's going to take care of their sin problem. He's going to secure his relationship with them. All of those are promises, and they are meant to give great comfort and encouragement 
to the refugees returning from the land of exile to a land that at least to the, to the physical eye is a land that has been just trashed by the enemy. God is giving them a vision of hope of His personal involvement in their lives. Listen, these are incredibly important lessons for us to hold on to in 2020. But here's the catch. Chapter 4, verse 6. So the Lord answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. In other words, there's a tremendous encouragement in these visions that God is on our side and He is doing what is right to judge evil, to deal with wickedness, to protect His people, to make us fully who He wants us to be. But we have to understand the same way that the generation of Zechariah had to understand that it's not by any methods that humans are familiar with. The ways of God are not accomplished in, in, in the 6th century B.C. And they're not accomplished in the 21st century A.D. They're not accomplished by might. They're not accomplished by power. But by the ways, by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, the Apostle Paul would pull us over to his writings where he says, understand that it's not by flesh and blood that we do battle. How do we do battle? We do battle in prayer. We do battle by immersing ourselves in the Word of God. We do battle in spiritual ways. Part of the reason the church is so weak in our generation is because we've fallen victim to the idea that marches in the streets and protests on sidewalks and and, and those, are the, those are the ways that you create a stir. Those are the ways that you get things done. And if we could just capture once again the idea that it is in our prayer closets, it's in our hidden places, it's in our lonely spots that we do the battle that changes our generation. God is in the game. God has His people's best interests at heart. God will judge evil. But we've got to do it His way. By His Spirit. Not by might. Not by power. But by my Spirit, says the Lord. Well, those are, those are the visions. In chapter 7 and 8, I've called this a lecture on fasting. Um, these two chapters both deal with fasting. Let me just, uh, let me just give you some verses at, at the start of chapter seven. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezar, Regamelech, and their men to plead for the Lord's favor by asking the priests who were at the house of the Lord of armies, as well as the prophets. Here's their question. They sent a delegation. Here's their question. Should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done these many years? Now, we're not going to read all of chapter 7 and 8, but what you'll find is they refer to four different fasts that they had practiced on an annual basis. Uh, Jewish history tells us that during the time of the exile, they had built four periods of fasting into their annual 
uh, cycle. In the fifth month, there was a time of fast that was meant to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem. That is, when Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonian army, the walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed. They had a time of fasting every year to remember, to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem. That was in the fifth month. In the seventh month, what we find out is that there was a time of fasting to commemorate the murder of government of Governor Gedaliah. Now, you find that story in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 25, and you can go there and look at it, but it has to do with, um, w- with the assassination of the king, uh, of the governor, in those, uh, in those days as the exile was, uh, was coming into fruition, as it was coming to pass. Fifth month was a fast for the fall of Jerusalem. The seventh month had a fast for the murder of, of the governor of Judah. Um, there were two others. In the tenth month, there was a fast that commemorated the siege of Nebuchadnezzar as he uh, began the process of starving Jerusalem into submission before uh, the city was destroyed. And in the fourth month, there was a, a fast meant to commemorate the breaching of the walls. When the, the walls finally began to ca- come down and the enemy armies were successfully able to infiltrate and invade the city of Jerusalem. Four fasts all tied to the disaster that, that led to the, the destruction, the physical destruction of Judah and the removal of the nation's people into uh, two generations of exile. Their question is, what do we do now? Do we still keep fasting? I mean, the people are beginning to come back. The exile is going to be behind us. It's going to be history. Do we stay with these fasts that we've been doing? Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and lamented in the fifth and in the seventh months for those 70 years, did you really fast for me? See, his question is, Did you really do that out of a heart that was seeking me? Or did you just do it because it was one more thing added to the schedule of religious duties that you felt somehow made you uh, more righteous? Well, they have a whole discussion. Chapter 7 is the discussion of how fasting is pointless if you have a disobedient heart. Then we get to chapter 8, and the the discussion shifts, and the discussion takes on a a new tone, and that is now, even with an obedient heart, you've shifted from disobedience to obedience, but now fasting for those things, for the memory of those bad things, they're really, it's really no longer necessary. The answer to the original question, should we keep fasting, uh, is in chapter 8, verse 19. The Lord of the armies says this, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth will become times of joy, gladness, and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Here's what he's saying. A fast is a pointless spiritual exercise if your heart is not right and if you're in a disobedient attitude. But now that God is at work and up to something, he says those same times of fasting will be useless as fast because 
in your obedience and in my activity in your life, now I want those four fasting seasons to become festival seasons. I want them to be celebrations of what God is doing. What's the implication for us? The implication for us is fasting should never be a discipline divorced from a right heart. It is a spiritual discipline that can be used to focus on God, to learn from Scripture, to seek direction about a decision that has to be made. But we don't do fasting on a regular basis just as a spiritual discipline because as God is working in our lives, as He's making Himself known, we are a people who should celebrate that, who should have festivals that, that come together in, in, in recognition of all that God is doing. He doesn't dismiss fasting. He dismisses fasting that's not done with an appropriate heart and mind. But once God has answered, once God has moved, once God has worked, let fasting turn into festivals. Two great chapters. Now, chapter 9 is where we come to the sermons, the, the, the oracles, if you will, the proclamations that he gives over the course of the rest of his uh, ministry. Uh, in chapters 9 through 11... I've, 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 in the outline that you may be able to, to access, I've called chapters 9 through 11, Israel and the Nations. And these chapters speak more directly to Zechariah's time and what God is doing and what he will do in the surrounding nations. But then in chapters 12 through 14, the final three chapters of the book, I've called that Israel's future. And those chapters are just stock full of messianic and end times references, hints, things that we can, that, that we can find. Now, some of the things are related to the branch, the Messiah who comes as priest. We now know that that was his first appearance. And we can look at those things and say, Oh, I recognize that. I, I know that from the story of Jesus. Some of the things that Zechariah mentions, we now know are related to the branch, the Messiah, who will return as king. They are prophecies still to be fulfilled, still out there uh, toward the end of human history. So um, we're not going to go through all of these chapters, but let me just, uh, uh, just give you some. Chapter 9 and 10, chapters 9 and 10, um, let me just... Let me find here what I want to read to you. He starts by talking about judgment on the nations. But look at verse 9 of chapter 9. Uh, 9 and 10, by the way, are written. You can tell by the way they're printed in your Bible probably. They're written in poetic format. This is a, uh, a poetic uh, presentation. Verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, do you see the Messianic reference there? This is, uh, in, in Zechariah chapter 9, he's talking about the coming of this uh, king. But unlike expectation, God is always subverting our expectations because, because the idea is a king arrives on a war horse. A king rides in, in a chariot. A king has an entourage of, of those who, who, who defend him and who fight for him. But he says, your king is coming on a donkey. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as we now call it, 
that last Sunday before the cross, how did he do it? He rode on a donkey. Why? Because he is self-consciously presenting himself as a conquering king coming into his city, but with all the marks of humility that come with riding on a donkey. You see, this branch, this Messiah that Zechariah is speaking about is a remarkable character who rules in perfect justice, who lives without sin, but who serves in humility that demonstrates what it means to be in harmony with the Spirit of Almighty God. This is a king that undermines all the expectations of human kings. Human kings who take on glory, who try and build themselves, elevate themselves. They try and be impressive because they think that's the way to power and glory. Not the branch. He comes riding on a horse. Matthew chapter 21 is one of the gospel accounts of this event. Um, you can read the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10. Um, let, let, let's go to chapter 10 because I, I'm, I want you to see uh, as he's talking to the people of Judah about, uh, about what he's doing among them, he sprinkles these, um, these statements that have messianic application. Look in chapter 10. Ask the Lord for rain in the season of spring rain. The Lord makes the rain clouds and he will give them showers of rain and crops in the field for everyone. For the idols speak falsehood and the diviners see illusions. They relate empty dreams and offer empty comfort. In other words, uh, come to God with your needs. Don't go to, to, to the village shaman or witch doctor or, or palm reader or psychic. They, they have nothing but empty illusion to offer you. Therefore, because of, because they've turned to the wrong spiritual guides, therefore the people wander like sheep. They suffer affliction because there is no shepherd. In fact, we don't have to just leave it at the realms of psychics and palm readers. He's talking about any spiritual leader who doesn't give biblical counsel and truth to their people, who just give platitudes and, and, and empty uh, empty encouragements who who don't walk the ways of the of the one true God. He says, "My anger burns against the shepherds, so I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of armies has tended his flock, the house of Judah. He will make them like his majestic steed in battle." Um, drop down. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah and deliver the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them, and they will be as though I had never rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Now, go down a little bit further. Um, let's see. Oh, go to chapter 11. This is where he, he picks up. The poetic part finishes, and then he, he's delivering the sermon. Verse 4, the Lord my God says this, shepherd the flock intended for slaughter. 
Those who buy them slaughter them, but are not punished. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, because I have become rich. Even their own shepherds have no compassion for them. Indeed, I will no longer have compassion on the inhabitants of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I will turn everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue it from their hand. In other words, I'm not going to honor the promises made by false shepherds. That has some implications for 21st century American Christianity. The fact that you're called a pastor, the fact that you're a Sunday school teacher who teaches the Bible, God is not obligated nor interested in making our teachings have credibility if our teachings are not consistent with what His Word actually says. Whether it's preachers on television or teachers in Sunday school classes, There is a a necessity that we stay true to the Word of God. And those who say the Bible says one thing when in fact it means something completely different, those who abuse the text, those who, who, who misinterpret it for their own purposes, for their own gains, those who argue, uh, against proper interpretation rules, in ways that they try and use the Bible to promote their agendas when their agendas go completely against the Word of God. God says, I don't have to honor that. In fact, I'm going to bring judgment on people like that. But then look, in verse 7, he says, So I shepherded the flock intended for slaughter, the oppressed of the flock. I took two staffs, calling one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Then I said, I will no longer shepherd you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish. Let the rest devour each other's flesh. Next I took my staff called favor and cut it in two, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. It was annulled on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. All right, what's this chapter about? The prophet is delivering a message from God, and he says, My people were being led by mercenary shepherds who did not have their best interests at heart. They were speaking my word, but, but what they were teaching was lies. They were compromising truth. They were uh, promoting personal agendas. So I became the shepherd to my people. But when I came... Guess what? The people rejected me. And when I said, pay me whatever wages you think are appropriate, they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. The picture here is of a nation following spiritual leaders who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. What in the New Testament we called Pharisees and Sadducees. People who oppressed the nation by putting spiritual burdens, by putting weights on their their souls that that were not consistent with God's plan for His people. So God Himself 
takes on the role of shepherd. He's talking again about the branch, about the Messiah who comes. He comes to be the good shepherd. Jesus uses that language of himself in the Gospels. The good shepherd comes. He has the best interests of his people at heart. He has a, a good plan for their future. He wants to feed them and nurture them and protect them and strengthen them. But what happens? Astonishingly, despite the burdens that have been placed on the people by their false shepherds, they don't want the good shepherd. They reject him. Well, what's he worth to them? Well, 30 pieces of silver was the standard purchase price for a slave. The people looked at the good shepherd who only had their best interests at heart. And they weighed out the price of a slave. And that tells us their attitude. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver to the one who would betray him while the people stood in a courtyard screaming, Crucify Him. Can you imagine a greater disaster in human history than sheep who have been abused and taken advantage of and oppressed finally being given a good shepherd who has everything they need and everything they want and all that they yearn for. And they turn away from him and treat him with, uh, they despise him and treat him like a slave. This is the story of Jesus. Well, in verse 12, as he turns his attention more completely to these future events, um, we, we don't have time to read all of these chapters but, but let's go to chapter 12 verse 10 he says then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on, on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem this is God speaking pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David that is the descendants of, of King David and the residents of Jerusalem and they will look at me whom they pierced. What are we talking about? This is the Messiah. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of David's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Nathan's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Levi's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Shammai by itself and their family by themselves, all the remaining families, every family by itself and their women by themselves. Oh, it's a Jewish writing style, but what's the point? Now, see, we're still talking about the branch. We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the Good Shepherd. Only now, where we, we, we've just read about him riding on a donkey, 
We've read about him being sold for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, there's a reference here to, to the fact that he was pierced. But all of those are about the first time Jesus was here. The priest. But now we've transitioned looking way down the line of, of, of human history to the next time he comes as king. See, this hasn't happened yet. What the prophet is saying is there's going to be a day when the one who was pierced, the good shepherd who was rejected, the branch that was not recognized, there will be a day when the house of David, when the people of Israel, when the tribes that remain will grieve and mourn because they will finally realize their Messiah is not somewhere out in the future. He came and they rejected Him and they will repent for that. You see, the promise here that Zechariah is announcing is that while there, he, he couldn't understand the, the way the gospel uh, w- would come to the Gentiles, the way the, the nations would, uh, would accept Christianity and, and the world would be transformed. But speaking in terms of Judah specifically, he says there's a day coming when Judah will pierce their Messiah. They'll, they'll reject the shepherd. They'll, they'll, they'll fail to recognize the branch. But there is another day coming at some point where they'll realize that and they will come back in grief and mourning and they will make their way to their Lord. Wow. What a promise. What a promise that what God has for His chosen people didn't burn up and end with with the death of Christ on the cross. The gospel was opened up to the world. Gentiles began to flood into the faith. We now view Christianity as something separate from Judaism. But there is still an underlying root. There's a connection. Paul in the book of Romans says that Gentiles are like branches that have been grafted onto a tree, a Jewish tree with Jewish roots. We have that bond, that connection. And while the Jewish people by and large have not yet acknowledged their Messiah, there are some. We have Messianic congregations. We have Messianic rabbis. There are some who have acknowledged Jesus Christ. The prophet says that there will will be a day though when the nations will make their way home to the truth of the one that was uniquely given as a gift through them to the whole world chapter 13 on that day a fountain will be opened for the house of david and for the residents of jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, I will remove the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. I will banish the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. He goes on to say, on that day when they come in grief and mourning and repentance, like the son of the the father of the prodigal son who races with open arms to meet him and welcome him home, God will be there to purify His people, to bring them completely into all that He has. Chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. 
You see the hint? Here is Zechariah. He's still looking forward. He doesn't yet know how to distinguish. He, he, he's describing what he's seeing, but like those mountain peaks, he has trouble distinguishing what happens and it really has trouble realizing that we're talking about two separate comings. So some of these things, we look back and see that they happened in the story of the Gospels that we have. Other parts have yet to be fulfilled because they're still out there. They're still on the way. And that's what this is. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by My mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. What He's describing, if we had time, we could go, there is a battle that is recorded in Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38. And then there is a separate battle recorded, uh, we call it the battle of Armageddon, recorded in Revelation chapter 20. Those two battles are not the same battle. They're two battles, which is what Zechariah is describing here. A battle where evil seems to, to hold sway. A battle where, where, where the king comes with his holy ones and defeats evil. Listen, Zechariah is telling us a message consistent with what other prophets had to say, with what John has to say in, in, in the book of the Apocalypse. This is all written by one author. You say, well, well, the descriptions are different. Well, sure, the descriptions are different. I mean, if there's a wreck at the intersection uh, out here in front of the church and they interview 12 eyewitnesses, every eyewitness will tell the story in a little bit different description because of the angle, the perspective that they had. The prophets are exactly the same. They're gifted to see something that God is showing them, but none of them have the full uh, overhead uh, understanding of everything. They're describing as best they can what they see. And we put it all together and we have this incredible story. They say, well, well what's the timeline? I want to know the chronology of the, of the last days. The Bible is not interested in the details of the chronology and people who spend a lot of time trying to piece that together are really sort of missing the point. The point is not the chronology of events. The point is the sovereign God who's behind everything that's happening. Verse 6, On that day there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day known only to the Lord without day or night, but there will be light at evening. On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Listen, Go read the closing chapters of Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel describes a, a river of, of, of life, of water flowing out of the temple in Jerusalem. The prophets are all describing with the limitations of their human vocabulary what they were granted the privilege of seeing. And what they were granted the privilege of seeing is that God will be the center of His people. There's no need for the moon. There's no need for the sun because the glory of God will illumine uh, the space. There will be life. There will be 
prosperity. There will be bounty. Oh, and there will be justice because evil will be dealt with. But look at what happens here. This is a reminder through Zechariah to Judah that uh, this is a hint at what we call the church era, the the 2,000 years that that we're a part of. This is not only going to be for Israel. Chapter 14, verse 16. Then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Should any of the families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of armies, rain will not fall on them. And if the people of Egypt will not go up and enter, then rain will not fall on them. This will be the plague the Lord inflicts on the nations who do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. Meaning after the branch returns, after the Messiah comes as king, after he establishes his reign on the earth, what we call in the New Testament the millennial reign, there is an expectation that all men will acknowledge him. There's still the opportunity, there's still the chance here during this time for rebellion and sin. Revelation takes care of that problem. But look at what Zechariah finishes with. And on that day, the words holy to the Lord will be on the bells of the horses. The pots in the house of the Lord will be like the sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. All who sacrifice will come and use the pots to cook in. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. What he says in this chapter is that there will be a time when the nations will rush up to to a man who knows God, one of God's people. They will rush up and grab his clothing and say, take me into the presence of your God. You know, for a generation that feels like evil is winning, I'm pretty happy to hear a prophet say that one day those who know the Lord will be guides into His presence for all the rest of the peoples on the earth. They will race to us and say, when you go to your God, take me with you. Folks, that's been what we are supposed to be about ever since Jesus gave us the Great Commission and said, go to all the ends of the earth and, and, and make disciples, baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. But what he's telling us is that one day, as things begin to come to a conclusion, we'll not only be fishers of men, but in that day, the fish will be jumping right into the boat. And we will have the task of ushering men and women into the presence of our God. That's going to be a good day. What if 
in the generation that we live in right now, what if we already set our sights on doing that very thing? Living our lives in such a way that we can usher the men and women around us into the presence of God. Man, Zechariah is a hard book to interpret. It's a tough book to understand. But it is filled with enough of messianic prophecy that's already been fulfilled to give us a tremendous sense of anticipation for the other prophecies that have not yet come to pass. The longest of the minor prophets, but a book that we should probably spend more time in. Zechariah. Remember, one of these days you're going to meet him in heaven and he's going to ask you what, he, what, he, what you thought of his book. So spend some time there. God bless.